Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Privacy Please. I'm your host, Cameron Ivey, and with me is my wonderful co-host, Gabe Gums. And today, we have Joe Gordon on. She is going to introduce herself and tell the listeners, you know, what you do, how you got into privacy, and all the things. Thank you so much for having me today. I yeah. am a privacy attorney based out in South Florida, and I'm actually working for a consulting firm where I work with organizations in different industries and help them implement privacy by design principles into the design of their services and products that they offer. Awesome. And and when did you kind of get into that after you got out of college? You know, were you already like into privacy? Was this a thing you were really interested in or what kind of drove you there? Yeah, great question. So the answer... One question you asked is whether it was something that I was very interested in um, when I graduated. And the answer is yes, it was. I graduated from law school and really wanted to get into something that touched on technology. But unfortunately, the job market for that just wasn't there for me at that time. And I spent some time doing other things. Um, I was a litigator for a while. Then I did legal project management for a few years. And while doing legal project management, I was able to make a lot of connections in the privacy space. And that's when I was um, able to fully transition over to this career about two years ago. And I absolutely love it. Awesome. It's so neat how things kind of just turn out after, you know, meeting so many people and connections. They're so important. Now, privacy obviously is a big thing right now. You know, COVID-19 is going on. Everybody talks about that. Let's talk about a few different things with everybody working from home now. The biggest thing is using your cameras. And speaking of which, I don't have my little flap turned down blocking my camera um, (laughs) as I speak. And let's talk about Zoom for a second here. Let's talk about how there's been uh, many issues in the past and recently and how obviously a lot of people are using it more than usual now. Um, what, right. What's your take on that? What have you heard around that? Well, I think like most people, I was really enjoying and have really been enjoying all of the virtual happy hours and yeah. virtual everything that's come from this social distancing period. It's one of the best things to come out of it. But Zoom has certainly put us all on a roller coaster um, <laughs> over the past couple of weeks. I think many people more and more, had it- more people drinking too. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you you got to get through it the best way you can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, a lot a lot of people who hadn't used Zoom were had just heard of it, you know, just a couple of weeks ago and were really excited and then right after that a lot of people real you know realize all of the privacy problems around it. I've had friends write me about this. I see it on LinkedIn all the time. My mother just sent me a text this morning uh, with an NPR article saying, why didn't you tell me this about Zoom? You know, and I can't get to everybody. <laughs> so, right. um, so, yeah, they've had a lot of problems mostly over the past 10 days or so when all of these privacy and security issues came to light. Yeah. And so to give an overview of some of their 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 issues, I mean, the main thing that's going on with with with, with Zoom is they have 
very lackadaisical security and privacy measures. So basically every security measure that you would expect to be present in a video conferencing software was lacking. That includes encryption levels, uh, privacy controls. I mean, they were sharing data with Facebook from people who don't even have a Facebook account. And oh, wow. they were, uh, you know, routing chat calls through China when there were no disclosures about that happening, you know. And due to the poor security measures they had in place, Zoom bombing became a new thing that emerged. And I'm sure you guys have heard about this, but there's... Yeah, we can dive deeper into that. So if nobody's right. really heard of it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, for anyone who has not heard of it and isn't familiar with this phenomenon, there is a group of malicious actors who have created this automated tool that can find 100 Zoom meeting idea IDs in a given hour, and they can join those groups. And what they're doing is they're just trolling different meetings and posting explicit content and racial slurs. And there have been reports of this happening uh, at Sunday school sessions, at AA meetings, you know. So random. Yeah, you know, so. How how did it become a thing to where people have actually noticed? I mean, did the company Zoom actually report something or... You know, are they being pretty transparent about the whole thing? That's a great question. And I think we all have to pat ourselves on the back for that. Privacy professionals have been saying forever that consumers are going to start becoming more and more aware of every organization's privacy practices. And what happened here initially is that consumers and privacy professionals read through that privacy policy and noticed things were strange and then dug a little bit deeper and deeper. And ultimately, we have an issue now where it's reached you know, the, the uh, federal level. The FBI has yeah. issued a warning. There's attorneys general in multiple states who are investigating them and public school systems around the country are now one by one banning Zoom. But this started because consumers and privacy professionals said, wait, something doesn't look right. And that's something that privacy professionals have been warning is going to keep happening. And, you know, companies who are making these sloppy privacy policies and saying no Mm -hmm. one's going to read it anyway, aren't going to be able to get away with that much longer. I had two questions. I mean, one of them was based on kind of what you do professionally, what would you have advised this organization to have done up front in yeah. terms of building privacy and by design? That's my first question. Right. That's a great question. And they needed to do two things that go hand in hand today. And that's, and the first thing is implement security measures. Make sure that you have solid levels of encryption in any technology that you're offering people. Um, And then on the privacy side, there's a big thing that they missed. And um, they actually started to correct this yesterday, but they offered tiers of, of of, uh, you know, their products, you can have a free version. And then, you know, there's the low level and high level. And what they did at Zoom was they didn't build privacy by design into all of their levels. The free version lacked many of the privacy features that would have prevented Zoom bombing from happening anyway, such as enabling 
you know, hosts of the free version to require a password to enter a meeting. That was something you had to pay for before yesterday when they changed it. The other thing is um, giving all hosts the option of a virtual meeting room, meaning that no one can enter or sorry, a virtual waiting room to enter the meeting. Mm. That means that now hosts of the free version have an option to um, control who enters. Those are two basic features that Zoom just implemented yesterday across all versions of their product, but that you had to pay for in advance or um, uh, in the past. So Gabe, when you ask what I would advise them, uh, I would advise them in any company who is offering any kind of product that you can't make people pay more for privacy. You know, yeah. you can make them pay more for fun backgrounds, for <laughs> like different emojis, but it's not okay to make people pay for pay pay extra for basic privacy solutions. And there's obviously, as we can see, a privacy problem here, but there's a deeper philosophical problem, I think, too, which is if that kind of, of uh, action goes unchecked, you have an inequality issue on a larger scale where people who can afford privacy and can pay extra for privacy get it, but people who have less money become more vulnerable to surveillance and intrusion. So I'm very happy to see that this is one of the first actions that Zoom has actually taken and it went into effect yesterday, those two things, because that kind of setup would ultimately create inequality if we let that go unchecked and unnoticed. Let me ask a follow-up question. Uh, although I don't want to debate the ethics of it, but can you legally make people pay for privacy? Yes, you can legally make people pay for wow. privacy. You uh, you know, there's a freedom to contract, right? You know, um, this is capitalism. Obviously, the government, when we talk about that, we get into discussions about the Fourth Amendment, and we have a right to, you know, not have intrusions into our privacy from the government, from the Fourth Amendment. But a company could charge you for that. It's just not ethical. And as we can see, people are not okay with it. And also, yeah. if if a company is going to do that, it has to be disclosed. And that was another issue with Zoom is that the disclosures in their privacy policy were just not up to par with what they were actually doing. So that makes sense, right? Because I, I think about the other privacy issue they got dinged for, namely sharing data with Facebook. I'd like to remind people oftentimes that if, if you're not the customer, you, you likely might be the product. Hence the, do you, can you legally pay for privacy? Facebook's free and your expectation right. of privacy, therefore, in my opinion, and I think most privacy professional opinion, um, should, it should be assumed that it is, it is somewhat limited just off the bat. Um, and so if I am logging into any platform using my Facebook credentials, you know, what's my expectation of privacy beyond that? I understand that they were supposed to tell folks up right. front, hey, this is what we're going to be doing. But I, 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 I hate to blame the victims here. I never want to be, you know, the, the victim blamer. But at what point do we do we drive it home to consumers? And by consumers, I mean people that use these products, everyone, us, that doing things like using a free platform that collects information on you 
with another platform that you may not want to share information with, you have now polluted the streams, the pools. You were, you're crossing those streams, and we were warned to never cross the streams. Right. Right. Exactly. And it's and it's becoming part of general conversation and households and amongst coworkers and social gatherings now. You know, privacy is definitely becoming something that people talk about more. And I think as that happens, people will start to challenge their daily actions. I mean, there are so many things that we do every day that have privacy implications. And as it becomes part of the conversation on a more frequent basis, it will drive consumers to start challenging some of the things that they do by default every day, such as having Alexa always be on or having that Facebook portal or, you know, the Google Chrome video always, you know, available to record what's going on in your house, even things such as, you know, using social media in general, liking certain things from different brands, all of these things that we just instinctively do, many of us every single day have privacy implications. And for a long time, and even now, people have been saying things like, you know, I don't have anything to hide. So why do I care about this privacy intrusion? Because Mm -hmm. I just want to use Facebook. I don't have anything to hide. I don't care if they track my 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 location, but I I I I hope at least that it'll start to become apparent that it's so much more important than not having something to hide. There are so many other reasons to care about about privacy. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, with with everything that's going on, everybody obviously working from home, it it's changing everything, and it's it's changing. It's going to be changing things for the long haul, even when this is over. You might even see newer companies coming out with like Zoom type of features and stuff like that. Is there is there better alternatives out there that you know of or that actually did it better than Zoom when it comes to privacy? Right. And what I love about that question, Cam, is that, I mean, <laughs> the answer might be no. And, yeah. and, right. and that's why we are having this conversation and why Zoom is such a good example, because they've done a lot of things right. And I think that no discussion of Zoom should, should be void of the fact that, look, it's, it, is a, it, it functions well as, as a yeah. video conferencing solution. And also, I, you know, it's worth saying that their CEO has responded as well as he can over the past 10 days. He's taken responsibility. He's Mm -hmm. been very vocal and responsive, and he's attacked it head on. Um, But the reason why we keep talking about Zoom is that I think a lot of people haven't found anything better for the things that we use Zoom for. I actually um, spent a lot of time looking into this because I, when I found out about this um, issue, I, I wanted to find something new. I mean, I use Zoom because my friends are having happy hours and I can't be mm-hmm. the one to ruin the party and say, no, happy <laughs> hours canceled, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I have looked into other, th- I mean, I've looked into, um, you know, house party and jitsu are two that I've tried they honestly don't have, in my experience, which is limited, um, they haven't had the same audio and, and video quality. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another solution called Signal that I think is actually really great. Um, it has great quality and excellent security, 
but doesn't offer groups. It's great for one-on-one. So if you have a meeting with oh. your therapist or a doctor, that is what I would recommend using. Um, me, your entire family, because I've switched just about anyone who wants to communicate with me on a regular basis over to Signal. I- right, 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 right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I mean, anything that you value and and any communication that you want to have control over. So uh, that's that's a a great solution for that. But honestly, on a from a group standpoint, I have not found something better. I don't know. What about you guys? Have you have you looked for for anything and, and done any comparisons? I'll tell you, I haven't intentionally. And one of the things I appreciate about Signal not having group functionality goes back to the old adage of the only way to keep something between three people is to remove one of them. Um, <laughs> right. it, is, it is by design, not intended. <laughs> You, you immediately lose privacy when you introduce a third party. That's 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 just sure. how that works. Um, right. I, I actually haven't looked for anything other than that. Uh, iMessage, I think, might be the next best secure group messaging mm-hmm. um, solution. But I find if it needs to be secure amongst three people, I don't know, maybe you meet in person. Although that's not something you can do today. Right, uh, right. <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> right. So takeaways with, from this, obviously, um, like you were touching on, Joe, is, you know, with Zoom acting like they are and taking responsibility, privacy does matter. And that's why we're here. And that's why we're talking about this. And I think I think it's really interesting. Is there any other points you want to make on, on the Zoom topic? Well, just that, to reiterate that consumers will notice unethical privacy practices and consumers will continue to notice um, attempts to not be forthcoming and and um, and that's just not something that companies are going to be able to get away with as we have more and more issues like Zoom come up and dominate the news. Right. It's all true. And this kind of is a good transition into the Marriott topic because obviously everybody's heard of that. It happened, what, six days ago. Um, 5.2 million guest records were stolen in another data breach. Um, I think the last one for Marriott was in 2018. Is that right? Yeah. It might have been slightly. Yes, yes, yes. It actually came, came to light in 2018, but it actually happened a couple of years before that. And that's, that's, oh yeah, <laughs> it's, I mean, that's the, that's the other thing that's concerning. And we've talked on, we talked about this in past episodes before, but I mean, this is happening again to, to this big company. And like you said, it happened, it, it, it came to surface in, in 2018, but it happened way before that. And right. it makes you, it makes you worried because how long is this one going to take to actually let you know which guests actually got uh, their data breached? Right. Um, how long is it going to take for them to actually release that? Well, they they have posted a website. It was not functioning last week, but hopefully they fix kinks. But where users can go in, put in their uh, first name, last name, I think email address, and then search to see whether or not they were included in the in the data okay. breach. Um, so so I I believe that they've narrowed down the actual individuals who were affected by this but you know the scary thing here and the unfortunate thing for Marriott and for all of us is that this happened because of an authentication 
issue. Right. Um, these cyber criminals were able to access 5.2 million consumers, uh, you know, records because they were able to log into employee accounts that had administrative um, administration capabilities. And it's something that is maddening because this could have been resolved with uh, with any kind of respectable multi-factor authentication system set up, you know, and I kind of expect and hope when I do business with organizations at that level and when they have access to all of my information, you know, from my sometimes, you know, driver's license, passport numbers, all of your credit cards, that they at least mm-hmm. have multi-factor authentication for system admins. You have to appreciate the irony and go ahead and visit this web application and give me some more information about <laughs> <Right>. you. <laughs> and I'll let you know how unsafe you handled information about you. Yes, that is that's yeah. but like, you know, that's 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 also the issue with with um all the consumer rights and the data subject rights that are birthed from the CCPA and the GDPR regulations is that in order to access your data, you know, as a result of the GDPR and CCPA, you know, companies who who are who fall under those jurisdictions have to now give consumers the right to request to access or delete their information. But in order to do that, they also have to verify the consumers by requesting a lot of information, you know. Yeah. So I, I I was on on one retailer's website and um, I did an access request because they had extended their CCPA rights um, to everyone, you know, which a lot of companies are doing now. And I needed to give my first name, last name, my phone number, email address, and then after I sent that information, I got a follow-up email saying, if we still can't identify you with this, then we will request your driver's license number. And I'm like, why would I give this retailer all this information so that I can access my information? But yeah, that's just, that's just the situation we're in. Is It's hard to avoid instances where you have to give out your personal data, even if you'd want to see whether or not your data has been breached. Interesting times we live in for sure. Right. Scary. And you said, I don't know if you mentioned this already, but you said this, they already did a class action lawsuit. They've already filed that. Yes. I I, I can't recall which, which state it was filed in, but there's already a class action lawsuit that's underway. You know, that happened last time too. Um, it's still in the, in the very early stages. This just came out maybe a little bit over a week ago. So, um, you know, there's 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 going to be a lot of of developments as a result. And hopefully we'll hear about it. You know, I think yeah. the one unfortunate thing with this breach, well, not the one, but one of the many unfortunate things about this breach is that it happened at a time when obviously coronavirus is controlling the news cycles. And we haven't heard as much about this breach as we heard last time around when it was on CNN and NPR and every news news medium was talking about the Marriott breach before. You would think that they would be talking about it twice as much the second time it happened. But unfortunately, it seems like it may have slipped under the, the rug. So I hope that yeah. this still is something that people remember and that gets the attention it deserves, you know, once once this this is over. Now, what does this mean long term for the Marriott company themselves? Well, <laughs> This is going to be damaging to their brand. I know that yeah. a lot of their customers are people like myself who are consultants and other professionals who travel a lot and choose Marriott uh, 
every time because of the loyalty program. Mm -hmm. And I, for one, will not be staying at Marriott. I mean, what about you guys after after this? Should be called the uncertainty program. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, it'll it will it will change people's decisions, you know, who are most often their recurring customers. I think, you know, the ones who got the actual personal email saying, Hey, we have to let you know about this, you know, the the second time just two years later. And um, it's also just going to be costly for them. The last time around I I know that they were sued by, you know, a lot of entities. They had to pay each person who was involved in that breach last time. Um, uh, yeah, someone someone fined something in the UK, right? One hundred twenty-three million. Right, right. You know, and yeah. they're a big organization. You know, I don't think that that's going to necessarily cripple them. Obviously, but no. the 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 brand uh, reputation loss is likely going to yeah. hurt them. That said, again, fortunately for them, this is also during the coronavirus time. Maybe they're going to get a bailout that that also helps them for this as well. So they got lucky in some ways with the timing of this. And it makes you wonder whether or not they chose to bring it out at a time when the news cycle was low. <laughs> because it, because the timing yeah. is, is just so perfect for them. But no, I mean, that's 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 total speculation. And um, I think it will have, have a long-term effect on people's decisions. At, most people are going to think twice now. That's a good point. I know Gabe's a... He's a, I don't even know what it's called. He's he's definitely special to um, some hotels. He travels a lot. <laughs> Put it this way: I I I travel a frequent bit. I travel a lot and uh, stayed in my fair share of Marriott. And I don't know the answer to will I will will or won't stay with them again. I mean, at the end of the day, this is part of the problem as a consumer: is choice is also somewhat limited. Um, you know, there's uh, I, there's. There are other options, but you know, being part of a loyalty program does benefit those people who travel a fair amount. If you don't travel that much, it's probably easier for you to say, you know what, I'll just stay somewhere else. But, right. Yeah, <laughs> it, it does. It does get quite a bit more challenging. I don't know the answer to that question. Let's just say it's up in the air. Right. <laughs> well, we will check check back in with you on that in, in a yeah. year or so <laughs> and, see, and see how it played out, right? Good points. Um, now, Joe, let's let's transition into, you know, why we're talking about Zoom, why we're talking about Marriott. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's because, you know, we're on privacy, please. Privacy matters. Um, so let's kind of touch on some topics that you wanted to talk about. And I think it's, it's kind of safe to go into there, you know, invasions of privacy. Um, if you want to talk a little bit about how it threatens uh, liberty, entities right. can exhibit a, a degree of control over consumers uh, based on the personal information provided. Can you kind of touch on that a little bit? Definitely, and we and we previewed it a little bit earlier, but yeah, uh, you know, basically, I think that for some people who don't do who don't focus on privacy every day, there's a misunderstanding as to how important it is to be able to control your information about about yourself. And a lot of people who say, I have nothing to hide, so why should I care? Um, The privacy issue is not about whether or not you have something to hide, but it's about whether or not you want to control the data that you have about about yourself. And there's a high degree of liberty um, tied to to your privacy when you think of it that way and yeah. tied to the 
consent that you should be giving and before any person, government or corporation um, makes a privacy intrusion, you know, into into your personal life. So awesome. it's really more about controlling your data. And um, it, there are just so many reasons why that's important um, for people who don't have anything to hide. Uh, one thing that I always tell people right away when I'm, you know, being a little bit jokey is, okay, let me, let me see your uh, Google search history. And no one wants anyone to see that, right? So, no. so, I mean, it's not about having something to hide, but it's about having things that are personal and that are in your personal thoughts and everything. But, you know, then on a more serious note with that, you know, I, I mentioned that you have to think of the possibility of bad actors, you know, um, yeah might trust the people and entities that have access to your data now. And you might or you might not trust Jeff Bezos, you know, being the right. CEO of Amazon. But will you trust every person who's going to have access to your information in the future? And that's what you have to think about. You know, um, this was a big issue with um, obviously the Cambridge Analytica issue with mm -hmm. you know Facebook. It's like, you can trust Facebook now, but do you trust a bad actor who gets access to all of your Facebook information? And do you understand what what, what that bad actor, you know, can uh, do for you? Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think I told you, you guys a story before whenever we were chatting. I have, a, I have a friend who's on the way other end of this and just he's a guy who loves everything technology and um doesn't keep privacy necessarily at the forefront of, of all of the tech he consumes and has plugged into his life. And I recently had a conversation with him about um, Google location data. And he mentioned that he keeps his Google location data on and allows Google to save his location so that if he ever got convicted or accused of a crime, he could use it as an alibi. <laughs> and, and, um, cute. Oh my goodness. If you want to make a privacy professional have an aneurysm, that's what yeah. you need. <laughs> I mean, my head almost exploded. There were so many things I had to say, you know, but um, that, some that, people never heard of sim swapping attacks. Has he, I would be right. a demonstration of how I could swap <laughs> and, uh, and make it look like he is, he's anywhere on the planet, quite frankly. That right. And good. then, Right. And that's a situation where there's a bad actor who's, you know, uh, manipulating the data. But there could also be another situation with a bad actor there, you know, who can frame you for a crime based on where you were, you know. And there's 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 so many problems with that. And um, I don't think most people necessarily are that embracing of, you know, just giving away their personal data. But I do think that maybe people don't think critically about it at all. And um, it should be important because, e like, even if privacy is not important to you as an individual, it impacts all of us collectively. And the yeah. world would be a worse place if there were no attorney-client privilege or if whistleblowers or journalists didn't have certain privacy protections, you know, this is something that is a collective good. And if all of us collectively give it away so easily and so freely, we're not going to be able to necessarily claim the benefits of it as easily as, yeah. as, as we should be able to. You know, without 
getting overly technical. I, I, I want to help our listeners and, and, and your friend kind of pull on this thread a little bit more. The way the way SIM swapping and cloning attacks works is by calling up your mobile service provider and basically impersonating you, giving them enough information that they think that the person on the other end of the line is actually you. And they use that information to then, uh, you know, get, get a copy of, of your SIM, um, either a virtual one or a physical one, and and they clone it. And they can use your phone and do any number of things because there's lots of there's lots of ways that you can, you know, charge things through your, your mobile provider and things of nature, especially in other parts of the world. And so by not doing things like safeguarding basic information about who you are, uh, you've already started answering a number of the questions that when you call up AT&T, Verizon, whoever, are going to ask when they're trying to validate you are who you say you are. And, and, and that is exactly how those privacy concerns lead directly to, to further um, breaches of your, your data and your, and your privacy, for that matter. Right. Well, I, w- I will be sure to send him the link to this episode as soon as it airs so that he can <laughs> see that I am not the only one who yes. thought this was a bad idea. <laughs> I hope so. Um, so I got a couple more questions before we close out. Uh, one being, you know, someone like yourself, uh, a woman in security and privacy, uh, it's got to be a proud thing to be and, and, and being in law. Mm-hmm. Is there, is there any advice that you would give to other women that are debating on a career in privacy law and um, security and, and, and what it's done for you personally? Definitely. That's, that's such a great question. And thank you for asking that. Um, I, I get this question, this question asked to me a lot. I'm very active on LinkedIn and that breeds a lot of different, um, you know, relationships with with people, but I'm also involved in in organizations. So students will come up to me and ask me this question often. And one tip that I would give, per, particularly when it comes to you know women going into this field, is to not be intimidated by the tech side if you don't have a technology background. That's the most common question that I get asked. Is yeah. you know I majored in philosophy and so I can't do privacy and that's not true. You can. Uh, I majored in political science. I definitely have had to do a lot of training and I took advantage of courses on edX and on Coursera and um, read a lot of different books, listened to podcasts and everything to be fluent in terminology and to understand some of the computer science principles that I need. But the number one piece of advice that I would say is don't be intimidated if your background is not in computer science and you want to do privacy because there's a space for you. And there's a lot of privacy professionals right now who didn't come into the field with that background, but are excellent at their jobs. And, you know, tech changes all the time. So, learning it now in some ways is just as good as learning it 10 years ago because it's so much different. It has evolved so much. So you can catch up a lot and learn the technology information that you need um, without having had a bachelor's degree in computer science. If I told you the number of folks in IT security in general that have history and English majors, you wouldn't be surprised. (laughs) right and there's there's plenty of room for women in this industry and that's uh, it's it's rising which is great to see 
That's kind of why yeah. I wanted to ask that. It's real. Yeah. Mandatory to get more perspectives in the room. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, even removing the gender part of it, the one thing that I love about privacy and what really uh, made me gravitate towards it as I became exposed to it in my, in my pre-privacy job was that it's a, it is an interesting area of law where people and attorneys freely share ideas amongst one another. Um, before being a privacy lawyer, I did, I was a litigator and that's a field where there's always angst. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. you just say hi to another litigator. And it's like it's like it's an angry hi that that uh, you get back, <laughs> and you learn how to deal with it, and you learn to like it and be like that, and that's okay. But what's great about privacy is there's a degree of passion for most privacy professionals. We really do care about privacy on a deeper level for the most part, other than just our nine to five job. And because of that, I've gotten so many great tips from other privacy professionals on LinkedIn. Um, You'll see instances where someone will post a privacy policy that they wrote or an information security policy that they help someone with. And it's just great being in a field where all of the other professionals in your field want you to succeed because they want privacy to mm-hmm. be successful, you know? So that's also yeah. one thing that I really love about it. And, you know, women are definitely great. I have found in this field with like mentoring one another, but it's, but it definitely crosses gender lines and it's just a field where everyone is really open to helping each other more than a lot of other areas of law specifically. That's awesome. That's great to hear. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Gabe, do you have any questions before we wrap it up? I think the only question I have is, Joe, where can they come to you for all that mentorship? I thought I heard you say you mentor people. Mm-hmm. Through that. <laughs> yes. I mean, it is. I, I am very active on on LinkedIn. That is my main social medium. It takes up so much of my time that I honestly would not get any work done if I also did Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. But the best <laughs> place to find me is on uh, LinkedIn, I respond to every message I get, and I really do my best to stay in touch with all of my connections and update them on things that I'm doing. And I ask questions a lot and give advice a lot. So if anyone wants to connect with me about this topic further, about anything else, um, look me up on LinkedIn. It's Joe Gordon. It's J-O. Um, there's no E. And last name is Gordon. And uh, my company is Focal Point Data Risk, by the way. So if anyone wants to search me uh, through my company, you can do that as well. Awesome. And just really awesome. quickly for our listeners, what exactly does your organization do? Yeah, my organization is a mid-sized consulting firm. So we do risk consulting on in a multitude of different practice areas. I'm obviously on the privacy team. But our company also does other types of risk consulting as well. So uh, definitely check out our our website and ask me uh, any additional questions about about that too, because there's a host of different cyber solutions as well, um, in addition to the privacy side of, of our business. Excellent. I appreciate that. Yeah, thanks so much. And before, last question, um, you've been mentioning a lot of the um, party quarantine things and stuff. Yeah. Um, what's your go-to drink? Oh, that's a great question. I am a dirty martini kind of person. Okay. There's, just, there's just nothing better to me after a long week of work than sitting down <laughs> and and uh, having having a dirty vodka martini. There you go. What yeah. about you, Gabe? 
Ah, oh, my favorite drink. I mean, I consume ungodly amounts of kombucha. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is fermented, so it, it, it technically counts. But but right. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll indulge in a little in a little uh, scus, uh, a little whiskey once in a while. Um, yeah, that's that's usually where I'm headed. That's a good choice. Yeah. Whiskey. You can't go wrong with scotch whiskey or something like that. No, not at all. All right. Well, Joe, thank you so much for your time. And uh, we'll just go ahead and call you a recurring guest. And I'm sure we're going to have you on again. Yeah. Um, I would I would love to be back. You know where to find me. This was great. Yeah, there's going to be plenty more breaches and uh, plenty more issues like this <laughs> Sadly, right? over the future. Well, thank you again so much. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks. Thank you. Bye, guys. See you. Bye now. Oh, thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Privacy Please. This podcast is brought to you by Spirion, protecting what matters most. Join us next week and every week as we delve into the intriguing world of security and privacy. You can email us at privacyplease at spirion.com and hit us up on our Twitter at privacyplspod. If you want to read more into these topics, check out our blogs on spirion.com. Again, I'm Cameron Ivey an all-around decent guy. Until next time.